We're in Luke 2, and uh, I'm going to go back and read several verses. We'll begin in verse 36 in just a minute, Uh, but let me pray as we begin. Our God and Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day. Father, we're humbled to think that you let us handle the Holy Word of God. We pray that you'd forgive us, me, as I handle this from yet a sinner. Pray, Father, that the Spirit would overcome the flesh, that we would have the true mind of Christ and be fed from your holy word. Fit us better for your service, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Good to have you all here. We were talking about lessons uh, from lesser known saints, and we looked at Simeon last week. I want to pick up on another one right behind that in Luke 2, 36. There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day, and coming up that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak of him to to who all were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. I'll stop there. We talked about Simeon. These two people who were at the temple when Christ is presented there. And now we look at Anna. If you uh, study this, Anna is a derivative of the name that we see in the Old Testament, which is Hannah. We have a godly example of a lesser known saint to some people who was the mother of Samuel. A wonderful woman. What does it say about this woman, Anna? She's a prophetess. Luke seems to take special notice of spiritual lives of women in scripture. And here's another one here. He's already drawn out for us Elizabeth and Mary in the first uh, chapter and into the second. Here he points out this prophetess. She really does proclaim the word of God. She doesn't fit the mold of Elijah or Jeremiah, but she is part of the transition team, if you will, from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And she's speaking the truth of the word of God. This this is a marvelous thing. As a prophetess, she also is speaking for God to these people, Uh, not to be overlooked. Generally speaking, we think of them as Old Testament people, prophets, but we do have an example of them in the New Testament. We, of course, already talked about John the Baptist being of this mold. If uh, any of you know much about the book of Acts, uh, (laughs) I was looking to see if our teacher there was listening. In Acts chapter 21, there's some prophetesses mentioned. Do you know who they are? I don't have a name for you, but I know their father. If you ever get to study the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 21, a man named Philip has four unmarried daughters who are prophetesses. We don't know a lot about them, but we do know that that's how they're described. Beyond that, Anna here is a daughter of Phanuel, means the face of God. You might also see that as uh, Penuel in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis. He was of the tribe of Asher, one of the lost, 10 lost tribes, so-called, of Israel, and a, a name that we don't hear a lot of throughout scripture. Anybody have any idea what is meant by Asher? 
Well, it means happy. <laughs> okay. Do you know his family line? He's of one of the 10 tribes. He's the eighth son of Jacob. He is the second son of Leah's handmaiden, Zilpah. All of that in the book of Genesis. Well, that's important here. I want you to see the line again of Israel all the way through even some of these lesser known folks here. God's people are here. We just don't always see them where we think we should look for them. She is not mentioned, Anna, any other place in scripture. This is one of those people, and I'm going to ask you in a minute if you can think of anybody else like this in scripture. Not a lot mentioned about her, just this. What's the point? The point is Luke had something for us to learn about this woman. She is above reproach. She was advanced in years. Now, anybody here, I use the ESV. Anybody here have another edition of the Bible? Nobody, huh? <laughs> Some people, if you get another edition of the Bible... If you uh, put this math together that we he have here about her age, you can come up with the fact that she was a widow for 84 years. Now that would put her, considering the young age in which uh, Jewish girls married, possibly up to her early hundreds. But if you don't, you, if you go with this, you say until she was 84, it still doesn't make her a young pup, does it? <laughs> 84 or even up to 100 years old. The point is that all of those years are spent in dedication to God. She did not depart from the temple. She married and only married seven years when she became a widow. And think of all that entailed being a widow. It is difficult, even if you've only been married a short time and maybe even worse. You've had a wonderful engagement, looking forward to that day, and boom, in what seems like an instant, your mate is gone. It doesn't get easier the older you get, but she's by herself. In this environment, in this economic environment, particularly in Israel, and she's dedicated herself to the Lord. 37b gives us an example there. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping there. What dedication? Where is she going to go in her widowhood? She's going to go to God. Where else would we go? Departed not from the temple. Near to God. You know, people ask uh, uh, my, I got brothers who retired shortly after I did. I got a friend in the ministry in Pennsylvania who's thinking of retirement. What am I going to do? Well, if you're married, the first thing you're going to do, I'm, I'm guarantee is going to be running after the grandchildren with your wife. But the other thing is, what this is a great time for us to give ourselves to the service of God like this woman is doing here. I don't have to work anymore. And thank God for that. If, if you have a good retirement, can do. why don't you parade right down here and sign up, if you will? I am going to be more dedicated to the service of the Lord. I have more time now. Wouldn't we? She certainly does that. She wants to be near to him. Psalm 134 verse two says this, lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. 
This woman, Anna, is living that out. I don't have a lot to say about her, but I do have that to say about her. She is living for the Lord. Look at her self-denial in doing this in 37b. We read, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. I won't ask you how many of you fast. It's a good discipline for Christians. Uh, we're not saying it's, you know, mandating this, but it's a good thing for spiritual reasons to do this. And this woman did that, fasted and worshiped coming forward in prayer. And it describes it as night and day. I have an idea that's what the verses in uh, the New Testament mean when it says uh, pray without ceasing. Anna is doing that. She is doing that. Her demeanor is this way all the time. And then, if you will, look at verse 38. She's led by God. Coming up, <laughs> the word would say, how coincidental this is. Coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem at that very hour. How does that happen? <laughs> well, this prophetess had a, a keen relationship with our God. She knew the time to be there. Plus, this was her habit. Do you come to the house of God seeking a blessing? You know, it was that very day that Dr. Phillips prayed on that verse that I needed. You ever had an occasion like that in your life? Man, I'm glad I was there today. I needed that. It might not be an encouraging thing. It might be something to slay your heart and convict you. But here, she's always there seeking the face of God. How could she not be blessed? How can you and I not be blessed if we're seeking God in his house? She saw him. What an answer to prayer. She saw him for whom she had been praying. What a God, how he condescends to this woman, this widow in advanced years and brings her into this close fellowship to see the Messiah, to see the answers to her prayer. Hallelujah. I hope you do that in your life, your prayer life. You give praise to God for when he answers you, when he condescends to answer us. Well, there are a number of lessons to see in this short couple of verses about Anna. See how she spoke of Christ in verse 38. And my quick question to you is, do you, do I speak of him to the people we come in contact with? Even passing by in, in a store where you regularly do business or something like that. And she spreads the news of redemption. She spoke of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel or Jerusalem. Now, you say, well, most of the people in America aren't waiting for the redemption of God. Well, they may not be, but perhaps we can pray that their eyes will be opened, that they have some need and we have some answer. Just as we heard in the message this morning, the, the answer, of course, is the Lord. And look, she was rewarded by God for this. What a blessing, how God condescends to his people. You think you're nobody, perhaps. I'm just an isolated person 
Maybe you live by yourself. Maybe you don't have an extended family. Maybe all your relatives are in another state. But God doesn't miss us. He knew this woman. He knows you. He knows me. He knows all of our circumstances. And he rewarded her, answered her prayer. What a, what a faithful woman she was and what a gracious God we serve <laughs> that he answers. She rolled out her credentials? No, no. <laughs> She doesn't, she might have, uh, might be a card carrying Jew, whatever, uh, but she doesn't have a placard. She doesn't have an office set up, come to see the prophetess, but God does not miss her. Notice that she's serving God in all seasons of life. I, I'm looking at some people who are older here, and I'm in that category these days. <laughs> Listen, because we have gray hair, <laughs> because our knees ache and our back hurts, doesn't mean we can't be used by God. I would say to you, the opposite is true. God will use us. Think of the knowledge and experience you have to dispense to other Christians. I don't mean you stand up on a pulpit and say, hey, I've been around a while, come here, got something to say to you. Do you do that when your grandchildren crawl up in your lap and call you, what, Grandpa? Is that what it was? <laughs> Do you have words of wisdom to say to them? I remember when, let me tell you about it. When God answered our prayer in this house and did so-and-so, all seasons of life, you say, well, I'm retired. I have, so what? This woman was, we'll say between 85 and 105 and still used of the Lord. Everywhere she went, she was talking about this redemption. She both knew the Messiah and she knew when he came. How much do you know of God? How much do you anticipate his coming, at least in prayer to you? Then the last thing I would have you see here is we have here the beginning of the Messiah's perfect life here demonstrated to us. And right along with it, we have this example of someone who knew that and believed it. She gave perfect obedience to what she was called to do. Just be a faithful witness for God. What a blessing. Do you have any questions or comments about Anna? I told you it wouldn't take long. <laughs> what? Yes. I mean, she didn't live in the temple. Well, what they do, they have some outside apartments, if you will. She may have been on the premises of the outside of the temple. It doesn't say, but uh, she may have been there so constantly that it seemed like she was living there. When Jesus was brought forth, she wasn't surprised. Uh, God was speaking to her, but she was also there and, and could have access to this. Some apartments were available, if you will, and I don't know all the details to that, but in the temple complex, some people did there, uh, live there, especially priests, for instance, who were there on their rotation to serve in the temple. So I don't know if she lived, she wouldn't have lived in the, the complex where the worship went on, but the outside apartments and the outside courts, she very well could have. I can't tell you for sure. Any other questions or comments? Well, let me, before we go on to the next part, interject something in here. Somebody questioned last week because we have two different accounts uh, in somewhat detail of the birth of Christ 
one in Matthew and one here in Luke. One of the things missing, but not really, from the account that Luke gives is what? Did you have the question last week, sister? Okay. <laughs> what about the trip to Egypt that you know about in, oh, okay, that we know about from reading in Matthew? I believe in studying this, that this is the time that it took place chronologically between the end of verse 38 here and when we go into this part called the return to Nazareth. I believe it was that intervening period there where years were taken for them to head off to Egypt, where Joseph was told to do that in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, I can't prove that, but in comparing the two Gospels, that's what I come up with. So Luke just doesn't explain that here for various reasons. Well, let me ask you a question as we think uh, we leave the thoughts of lesser known saints. Can you think of anybody else like that in the scriptures? I have another one for you, but can you think of anybody like that? Lydia. Pardon? Lydia. All right, Lydia. You want to expound on that at all? or You don't have to, but... <laughs> she was the first uh, convert in Europe, and she was found as a place where people pray when he came Amen. Amen. Yeah. Anybody else? Well, we had short uh, descriptions of Barnabas and his work, but then all of a sudden you don't hear about him anymore after he leaves on one of the trips. Okay. All right. <laughs> Anybody else? Junia. Who? who? Junia in the book of Acts. Okay. All right. I'm going to give you another one from the book of Acts. You want to expound on that, brother, at all? Okay. <laughs> Let me ask you if you remember a man from the book of Acts with the name of Ananias. Do you remember him? What do you know about him? Okay. All right. I think she's got the right one, the one I'm alluding to. Ananias 2. <laughs> we have Ananias, the husband of Sapphira, who disappears after chapter 5. But we hear of another Ananias in chapter 9. Let me read you a couple verses there. Beginning in verse 10 of chapter 9, the book of Acts. Um, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Now that's interesting because Damascus is not right beside Jerusalem. It is approximately 200 miles north of there. And he's a disciple. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise up and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, oh, this is Judas number two, I guess. Huh? <laughs> At the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. And I love this. I had to <laughs> underline this. For behold, he is praying. Ananias, I want you to go to him. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard uh, from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. 
And the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And he goes and does that probably with some trepidation, maybe knocking knees, but he goes and he's faithful to that call. Ananias, somebody we sometimes miss. Uh, it's a wonderful portrait of what I was just saying about lesser known saints. He had a profound influence on Saul slash Paul's life. Albeit he was sent by God, he didn't do it of himself. But what a gracious use he was to the kingdom of God to speak to Paul, Saul, about the Savior and about the way. <laughs> uh, he is one of a Damascus who's well spoken of. He was the disciple. A devout man, according to the scriptures here, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, that is Damascus. King James Version says this, a certain disciple, when it talks about this Ananias, specifically chosen, God in his sovereignty is orchestrating what's going on here using this man, a faithful servant, this Ananias, to... <laughs> uh, work in the life of Saul, and we see the gospel spread just tremendously through that ministry. And just like Barnabas was said earlier, this man, Ananias, has a portion in that. God chose him to reach out to Saul right after his conversion. Can you imagine? This is wonderful. This is great. Somebody we sometimes don't think about he was a bold disciple. He identified himself as a follower of the Lord. And uh, that ought to be part of every one of our testimonies uh, when people want to know what's different about us or when we get a chance to tell them, I'm a follower of the Lord, the way. He identified himself. He had great loyalty to Christ. And when he was called to go for this particular difficult task, to go face a man who had authority legally to persecute him and in some case maybe even go to the extent of killing him he's going to go speak to him faithful in small things and God gives him this bigger thing to do at this point but he's faithful and one Ananias a devout man according to the law well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there came and did this thing uh, just had that other thing I wanted to pass on. That third example of lesser known saints. Well, there are other people like this, but l l I won't ask you for more. But let me ask you this personally. Would you ever go back on your life and think of, to the world anyhow, lesser known people who had a great influence on you spiritually? I, I do that. So, uh, the older I get, the more I do this. You know? <laughs> I'm recounting the days and how I got to where I am. And I think of wonderful people that had an influence on me and sometimes I did not know what they were doing investing in me. But thankfully they did. I hope you do that sometime. They're lesser known people. You tell me who they were and probably won't ring a bell at all with me. But God uses people like that. And you, he can use you like that too and me. Uh, any other questions before we leave that topic? Any other comments? Any other professions? <laughs> All right. Let me read to you the next section and uh, 
for my friend Nate. I want to talk now about an amazing child. We've left, left these lesser known saints and we're going to look at an amazing child. That is Jesus Christ. Verse 39 and following. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But when they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Who is this amazing child? This is 12 years past the point where this amazing Messiah was born. Luke or, uh, and, or any other writer of the gospel doesn't give us much in between uh, 1 and 12. The same thing happens right after this passage. Nothing much is said about Jesus from that point, 12 or 13, until he begins his ministry at age 30. Don't know why. And, and I don't think anybody else can tell you that either. Why only this? Well, there's important things to say here. Why the other things are left out, I'm not sure. But I do know why much of what we read here has been given to us. Look at, they returning to Nazareth. What is it, Nazareth? It's their home. This is a godly family, by the way. And I hope you can see that in the way that Mary and Joseph bring up their, particularly this son and others to follow, I'm sure. They return to Nazareth. Verse 40 gives us an indication that this is early in his childhood. He grew, became strong, filled with wisdom and favor. A.T. Robertson, a commentary uh, that I do not own, but I read about somewhere else, said this, no one who did not love and understand children could have so graphically pictured the boyhood of Jesus in this one short paragraph. Isn't that true? Well, we're going to unpack that one short paragraph and see what is so wonderful about it. Basically, this is about, about his life from his presentation at the temple to age 12. What is so important about that? <coughs> Anybody know? All right. Do you know any current day Jewish people? At 13, the bar mitzvah. He's at age 12. Even, he might have probably did go with Joseph and Mary to Jerusalem. 
before this. Uh, but we're going to look at this particular instance. Why do they go to Jerusalem? Passover. Beg your pardon? For the Passover. Yes. If you go back and study the book of Exodus in particular, but also in Deuteronomy, there were three particular feasts that the Jewish men were to attend in Jerusalem. Passover was one of them. Now, they did. the women did not have to go for those feasts. It's wonderful if they did, and some rabbis encouraged them. And that's why I say, look at this godly family. Evidence seems to indicate that Mary always went with Joseph. She particularly did this time to celebrate the Passover. What was the Passover all about? Anybody? Book of Exodus? What? Yes. The Jews are leaving Egypt. God is delivering them finally out of Egypt. And they celebrated this. They began celebrating this thing on the, before they left when they spread the blood of the lamb over the doorposts before uh, they left Egypt. So the angel that came to destroy would pass over them. They ate a special meal with regard to this. So it was a great celebration. They had gone from Bethlehem to J Jerusalem to celebrate this Passover, and they were going back now to uh, Nazareth. As I said, Luke doesn't mention the Magi, but it's probably at this time that it took place. Look, if you will, about this Jesus here, this amazing child at his physical development. He grew, became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. He had a real body. We're tracking that a little bit here in Luke. That's important because the incarnation of Jesus is so crucial to the work of our Savior as Messiah to save us from our sins. He had a body like we do, and he grew. He got hungry, and you know he grew, grew tired. He's going across a lake in the middle of a storm. Everybody else is panicking, and he's asleep in the boat because he was tired. He was tempted. You go back to Matthew's gospel again, you don't even get started and you get to chapter four and Satan takes him off into the wilderness to tempt him, not just uh, slightly, but greatly. Not just for a moment, but for 40 days. And then there were other places and times I'm sure he was tempted. What's going on? He suffered as we do in measure, large measure, in the human body. He, to fulfill First Peter, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He was preparing in living this body for that day when this perfect life could be presented as a sacrifice to a thrice holy God. He grew in wisdom, not only in body. He grew in his human mind as well as his body. I don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. He did not simply have the mind of God in a human body. He had the mind of a man in this body, a child. You say, well, how can that be? I'm here to tell you, I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea how God and man come together in one, but I know it's in the scripture. It's true. And he did not just have the mind of God planted into this body. He had the mind of a child. I'm convinced, and as 
Mr. Riken, the commentator said uh, in talking about his development, the human mind is not omniscient. <laughs> We're thankful for that, aren't we? I'm thankful I don't know what's going to happen next week uh, in a lot of ways. It could be terrible. It is not omniscient. For instance, at two, he was not able to perform complex compute, computations of differential calculus. I'm much older than two. I still don't know how to do that, okay? <laughs> I am limited in the flesh. Some of you are too. At six, he did not know the percentage of hydrogen in Jupiter's atmosphere or the distance from Earth to Alpha, Alpha Centauri. I still don't know the thing about the oxygen in Jupiter's atmosphere. At 10, he could not recite the capital cities of Africa or the presidents that were to come in the United States. As a man, he knew things the old-fashioned way, just as you and I do. He had to learn them. It says, especially at the end of this chapter in verse 52, he increased in wisdom as well as the other things. He increased in this knowledge. He was growing as a, as a human youngster. He learned obedience through this way. Not for disobedience, but he learned to be obedient going through these things that had to be done as a youngster. He also grew in his relationships. We have that in verse 40. He was filled with wisdom and he had the favor of God upon him. Verse 52 gives us a different perspective. He grew in favor with God and man. He was growing in his relationships. What's important about that? What do you think? <laughs> well, why are you here in Sunday school today? I know you're not here because you owe me a favor, all right? <laughs> we want to increase in knowledge about our God. And why? I'll take it a step further. That we might be better servants of his. That we might know the things wherein we have to grow. How to avoid evil that we perhaps can't anticipate. He was going through this again for us. Well, these are the ways he's growing. Look at his spiritual acumen then here. He had an astute and discriminating mind at the age of 12. When I was the age of 12, I was probably reading a biography about Mickey Mantle. I was probably doing something like that. That's the acumen that I was interested in. Our Savior was different. He came with his family to Jerusalem every year for the Passover. Now, we talked about at 13, they had something called a bar mitzvah. Here it's age 12. Commentators believe he was particularly noted to be there because it was in anticipation of entering into the bar mitzvah the next year at 13. I'm going to hear, I want you to see, son, what this is all about. Look what the priest is doing. We're taking this animal up there for him to sacrifice. We're talking about the Passover when this was done in, in uh, Egypt hundreds of years ago. This is what we're commemorating. This is what this is all about. And uh, this is not like Pentecost and Tabernacle when we come here for those feasts. This is the feast of the Passover. You're gonna be 
particularly involved in this next year when you turn 13. The women, as I said, did not have to go. Godly Mary does, and she plays a part in this. I suppose that's a lesson for married people. <laughs> you were saying something earlier about the delight of being married. Isn't this what you want? You want your spouse to be with you to experience spiritual things, wonderful opportunities to spend in front of the Lord. Uh, don't want to fall into the trap of making too many personal illustrations, but we used to go to a church years ago where every summer we went to something called family camp. We packed up the car and we went to a university that was reserved for that in the summer when the students weren't there. And we met and we had uh, delightful speakers come in. Many of you would probably know if I told you. Uh, and they would come and we would have uh, services and they had services geared to the children too. And then we had the run of the place for recreation and they provided the meals there three times a day. It was wonderful. I thought of that when I thought of this trip to Jerusalem. It wasn't quite that well taken care of for you when you went there. But it's an opportunity to be together, to grow in the Lord apart from the other normal things of life. And that's why this is called a Sabbath. That's why the Sunday is a day of rest to enter into this kind of relationship. This is a lesson, I think, for married people that they went to this. Secondly, look here. Jesus was there as was their custom. And I believe, he, as I said, he was going in preparation for his 13th birthday. What is a bar mitzvah? It's a Jewish term. I heard this. I had a number of Jewish uh, young people I went to school with when I was growing up in junior high and senior high school. And they talked about going through this. What it meant was this young Jewish lad was to become <coughs> in this bar mitzvah, a son of the covenant or a son of the law. That's what he was going through. That's why this name, this uh, Jewish name is there, bar mitzvah, son of, you ever heard of bar Jonah or bar Simon? Son of the law, the covenant. He was going to enter into that. This was important. This is perhaps not unlike our confirmation here, whatever that uh, you can come up with as an example in our time. But he was going to be accountable before God in this way. Uh, somebody has said he was old enough to do right. Well, he was old enough to do right way back yonder before 13. But this is a demarcation. You're 13, you're a young man. Listen to what we're teaching you. And now, from now on, this is your responsibility as a young believer. And we're gonna teach you. What happens in verses 43 to 45? They take part in this and he's been there. Well, when the feast was ended as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. Any of you parents ever lost a child somewhere? The Mall of America and in Minnesota. I still remember years ago at the church where I was uh, attending, I was a member, I had a dear family there who had about seven children and they drove off one day and one of them was still there. <laughs> well, back then didn't have a cell phone, so somebody was gonna have to go into church office and call this family and say, hey, but before they got down the road very far, I guess the din was not as loud as it usually is. And they realized one of them was back at the church. They had to turn around and go get them. I don't know if you've ever been shopping with your children. You, you look around and where is he? I told him to stay here. 
whatever reaction, initially they were panicked and they were wondering, where is this child who stayed behind? His parents did not know it. What's that all about? Are they that ignorant about their child? Well, the circumstances, and I'll end here, I'll just leave you with this. When these people came to Jerusalem for the Passover, there were a group of Jews who traveled together. They were probably on foot, probably their extended family, relatives, and other friends who were from Nazareth or around there. So they were traveling in a caravan, if you will. The women and the younger children would always precede. The men and the older children would bring up the rear. Now, a 12-year-old boy, I don't know if you'd fit him in the first part or the second part, but my guess is Mary's, oh, he's back there with Joseph. Joseph probably said, he's up there with his mother. Well, when they got to the end of that day's traveling, decided this is where we're going to camp out, predetermined, they started to look around and count heads, and lo and behold, Jesus is not there. Well, I'll leave you there to contemplate that dilemma. Is this bad parenting? Think about that. Is that what's going on here? A mother who lost a child or two said no. That is <laughs> No, not necessarily. What's going on? I want you to think about that. Jesus has been left behind. Part of the problem, of course, is this caravan. Remember, they had 80 miles to go about. This was going to be couple days journey or more on foot. They got to an overnight stopping place and behold, Jesus isn't there. Imagine your fright when you lose a child and leave one behind, can't find him. I think maybe this is part of that sword that would pierce Mary's soul that was told to her earlier in our study in the book of Luke. Oh, there's going to definitely be one when Jesus is on the cross. But I can imagine the panic. Oh my, I've lost my child. What is going to happen? Where is he? Well, we'll answer that question next week, Lord willing. <laughs> All right. Joel, would you dismiss us in prayer, please, brother? Father God, I know we thank you so much that we can come to your house today and worship. We thank you for the people that you've drawn here and you've confirmed here. Lord, I thank you for our brothers and sisters so that we can gather and fellowship sanctuary and worship you and that our worship would be acceptable in your sight. Praise and we pray. Amen. Amen.